Welcome to Episode 7 of the Practical Operations Podcasts. We are your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf, Jack Neely, and I'm Jared Watkins. Today we're going to discuss scaling software deployments and breaking monolithic applications. So actually, I, I have something to start off with. I would like to talk about before you get to the scaling point, being careful not to try and uh, pre-optimize too much. So in, in the web world, in, for instance, um, I, I love Ruby on Rails as a framework, um, but it has a, a stigma of being really slow uh, in terms of performance. However, on the development side, especially, and, and if you really have some good Ruby and, and Rails developers, you can iterate very quickly with Rails. The framework is very mature. There's a lot of, uh, since it is very popular, there's a lot of plugins, a lot of uh, gems to augment and allow you not to have to repeat yourself. Um, so you can iterate extremely quickly from the beginning instead of sitting there and trying to pick the, the perfect framework with the best performance, but then have to write everything yourself from scratch in the beginning. So it's better to start off with a leg up in terms of time, iterate quickly, and then worry about the performance problem when you really do have a performance problem. Or when you have an established you know, that's product. that's something I fight with as well. When I'm trying to get something up to the point of a proof of concept, um, I really, I just need to focus on getting somewhere where I've got something that works and I can iterate on it. And a lot of times I end up uh, getting too bogged down in the code and trying to develop features that I don't really need yet or think I might need or this should be a, an appropriate computer science blah algorithm and really uh, getting something working, especially at a proof of concept level. I struggle with that often. I have this past week. Yeah, building the, the minimum viable product is often more important than doing it exactly right the first time. Oh, the, Brendan, you had to go and use the right words, didn't you? Sorry. It's buzzword bingo tonight on the, on the Practical Operations Podcast. Oh, right. The other thing you have to be careful of when you do this is you don't blind yourself or lock yourself into a solution without leaving yourself room to get back out of it later if it, if it proves not to be the right way to handle the problem you're doing. I think a lot of folks know Rails. It's relatively easy to write in Rails. I've done some Rails development. I'm not great at it, but, you know, that that's that. But it's also important to make sure that you have uh, you have thought towards scaling. So it's... I'm writing in Rails, I'm using a database, don't use uh, something local on disk or whatever. Actually use a real database that you can swap out later. So if you need to grow the database side of things, that's easy. Learn performance tools so you can pro profile your code and see if you really would benefit from a caching layer. Hint, you usually do need a caching layer of some kind. And then you can scale a caching layer. Those kinds of things. What's the largest app you've written in Rails in terms of requests per second or number of users or complexity? Man, that is such an unfair question. Uh, unfortunately, all mine have been have been on the lower lower end. Uh, I'd say the largest one probably had fifty or hundred requests per second, but not not more than that. And that was at peak, not not all the time. Um, a lot of the apps or a lot of the services I've worked on have been in niche markets and have had very few customers. Um, so it's always been low low throughput. So we usually have never hit a scaling issue with Rails before, especially if we used some caching or uh, any of the 
proper techniques, then generally Rails was good enough for us. We, we've never hit the Twitter issue before. So, Yeah, my Rails work was generally done on isolated APIs that kind of stood by themselves and they had a web front end if you needed to, to actually have a human sit down and use it. But the idea was they were they were already small disposable decomposed services that you could spin up easily and quickly and not have a gigantic single lumbering app, app you had to deal with. Yeah, that's that, that a lot of my experiences that there is some front end apps that I've had contributed code before on that did get some some usage, but a lot of mine are, are back end services, so to speak, that, that only sysadmins use or, or our ops teams use or even our devs use uh, that are just like you say, are just uh, little services that provide a, a, a pretty front end, but then also could provide a, a API back end. And I choose Rails just from that, just again, because it's so quick to iterate on and is generally uh, welcoming to some newcomers with some uh, with some guidance. Yeah, Rails is actually very, it's a good choice if you're building small REST APIs quickly. If if you're not doing a high volume application, it's a very sensible choice without even without putting much thought into it because it's easy to use, it's easy to support, a lot of people know it, and it gives you a RESTful API without doing a whole lot of extra work. So I have been doing as I've mentioned in the past, a lot of work with the Elk stack, the Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana stack. And recently, as I was talking to some developers who consume my product, and they were talking about breaking their major product out of being a big monolith, a big lumbering single application that does everything for the company, they're bringing it into microservices. They're going to the SOA architecture. And I realized that what I was doing with Elk, I realized this last week, I was building a monolith. I was building the monolithic elk stack for the company. And that's equally as bad as the sprawling Java application that they're desperately working on rewriting and, and breaking into smaller pieces into a into microservices. And it's it's sobering to realize that you're building something, you're currently building something in a way that can't scale. And the next time we had a major traffic spike, we're gonna have issues. So we're quickly backing off and trying to re-architect what we're doing with it. And I'm hoping to talk about that some tonight. Do either of you have other scaling things to talk about tonight as well? So we can kind of pass this around as we go back and forth. So a uh, point before we continue, um, isn't uh, service-oriented architectures different from microservices? I'm not clear on the distinction, honestly. Yeah, I was going to say one's related to the other. And so Stack Overflow, yeah, Stack Overflow has a good suggestion. You could think of microservices, microservices architecture style as a specialization of SOA. Yes, that's my understanding. Okay, but I'm not really clear on the exact details there either. Well, it's just as clear as rest, right? (laughs) (laughs) Good one. Let's put this link into the show notes so we can easily refer to it later. So with Elk, one of the things that we've been working on is all the various bottlenecks we hit. So there's how do you get the logs in from all the leaf nodes, all the servers running Logstash fast enough? How do you process them fast enough? How do you store them store them right in the disk fast enough? And then how do you archive them for a long enough period of time? And we've been treating this as one large Elk cluster. We've been trying to set up and scale and grow bigger and bigger and make ingestion, making the ingestion pipeline wider and faster and 
all of these pieces and we're coming to the realization that we can't keep doing this. We can't keep scaling everything. And particularly we can't keep scaling the storage on disk for long-term archival. We can't grow the, grow the cluster fast enough and keep it stable and keep things in memory to allow people to do searches. So we are looking at a number of different solutions, but the forerunner right now is breaking the storage cluster, the, the Elasticsearch portion of the, of the Elk stack into N pieces and then having the log slash indexers read off of Kafka evenly and then write to the various subclusters evenly. And this way, if we're ever down a cluster for a reason, if there's a, a master's issue or there's a, a data corruption issue or whatever, we can, one cluster can go down and the others will still pick up the load and still ingest live documents while we bring the other one back up. And this allows us to scale past the node count issue because we have a lot of nodes, node-to-node -node communication becomes a real issue and metadata overhead for the cluster becomes an issue and that side of scaling is a problem. But after this, we're gonna have to start dealing with other scaling issues and we are likely going to keep on expanding the number of clusters and possibly spin off entirely un or entirely unrelated clusters for other groups to use. Um, with a subcluster path, the way we handle the unified search interface is using what the Elasticsearch folks call a tribe node, which is a member of multiple clusters at once, doesn't hold any data in memory, and only acts to coordinate searches. So it can be effective. It can be an effective search node without having to do all the heavy lifting of all the cluster operations. Um, all of this is, of course, untested at this point. We are setting up hardware next week and the week after to validate our assumptions and then start building as fast as we can. Yeah, that was going to actually be my question. It sounds like that tribe node is, because when you were talking about splitting out the data, I was going to ask, how are you going to unify the search? But it sounds like it's basically like a proxy or whatever. Yeah, and if the tribe node doesn't work appropriately, um, which is a very real possibility because trust the documentation, but verify, I think is the appropriate stance on most things these days. If the tribe node doesn't work properly, we're going to have to build a cluster for each kind of log. So we say, okay, Load balancer logs go here, and application logs go here, and security and authentication logs go over here, and they're separate search interfaces and separate panes of glass, and that's just what's going to have to be. And past that, the scaling becomes, okay, we're going to start doing it based on environment, or start doing it based on you know tier of server. Instead of putting all of the, the, the load balancer logs into one place from the entire company, we say, okay, the ones that are serving mobile devices go into one place, and the ones that are serving you know, inter-app authentication go to another place, those those kinds of bifurcations to get each chunk of logs smaller. We would really prefer to do lots of clusters with tribe nodes so we can have still that single pane of glass across things. But we're currently looking at, our current Elasticsearch cluster is 100 data nodes, 105 data nodes, and nearly 400 terabytes on disk on average. And it's just, it's not, there's not a way to scale this any bigger with the number of node counts. So we, we need, we need to change the, the way we're approaching the problem. A lot of folks who have very large applications have grown them organically over the years. They've, they started with an application and then they, Oh, well we need to add this feature and that feature and the other thing. And it's kind of like Microsoft word, but for they've iterated, well, they've iterated, but they also haven't had a, had good project management and good product ownership. So you don't have somebody who's saying, does this, this doesn't belong here. This, we don't need this here. We need this somewhere else. You know, this should really be broken out into another project. 
And what you wind up with is these lumbering monstrosities that do everything for everyone all the time. And the scaling problem really starts bringing the old Unix philosophy back to bear, which is we're going to have smaller, simpler tools that do less things, but you can chain them together. And by doing that, you can have the flexibility, if not more than you had before, with easier to use pieces that individually scale better. I, and I, I think that works. I think the, the, the one word of caution there is, is if, if it makes sense to be a monolith, then I think it should stay a monolith. Like if, if you just have a lot of, of related data, cause it, it gets really difficult when you split everything out into microservices, but then you're getting data from the same three or four different s- sources. Every time that you're trying to do joins with another application across three different data sources, it actually makes sense to keep them in a monolith, but then work on performance or work on how you're, uh, storing or working on that data in the single monolith. Oh, true. If you're always, if your data is always flowing through the exact same path and the only problem you have is we're getting a 10% increase every year. There's there, the work of breaking the monolith is a lot less important at that point. But if your scaling factor is somebody says, okay, we're, we're doing a four X growth every year. Well, nothing can survive a four X growth for more than a couple of iterations you're going to have to start figuring out what needs to change and what needs to be broken out. Right. But if, if they're all related, then sharding or other, you know, splitting quote unquote techniques might make sense versus strictly breaking things out into silos almost. I mean, that's what I'm doing with Elasticsearch right now. We're, we're hoping that we can split basically, we, we're hoping we, we can basically shard the Elasticsearch process, which already takes data and shards it, which is amusing to me, but it, it points at some of the design limitations of Elasticsearch and Java. Well, yes, it's truly our, our issue is that you compress pointers in the Java heap. And if, if the compressed pointers wasn't an issue, we would just add more memory and keep on going. Um, for those who don't know, if you use less than 32 gigs of memory for heap, Java can compress your pointers. And if you use more than 32 gigs of heap, Java can no longer compress your pointers. So if you have Eight 30, bytes, baby, yeah, well, yeah, and so you go from basically using on average four bytes to using the full eight bytes. And if you if you go from thirty two to thirty three gigs of memory in the Java heap, you effectively need to go to fifty gigs of memory to have the same available memory as you did at thirty two gigs, which is awful. And performance suffers because you're doing more disk I/O because you're doing more actually you're doing more things that are uncompressed and other things have to happen and it gets it's bad. So. Those of you who run Java and have not experienced this before, stay below 32 gig. It's also worth pointing out, as Jared said, if you don't need to do this work, don't do it. Don't. Please let me be the first to stop you. If you don't, a lot of people want to invent things because it's shiny and it's new and I can talk about it on my blog and it's it's really awesome. I'm an engineer. I love to build things. I'm an engineer. I build things as an absolute last resort. Yeah, I'd have to say I have a real bad habit of wanting to build things, but then luckily my uh, laziness gets in the way halfway through it. I'm like, eh, maybe I could just do something else instead. Well, for for most cases, and this is, you know, a 95% kind of thing, most cases, somebody else has already done the work that you need to do. They've done it better than you have because you haven't done anything yet. They've tested out at least some of the corner cases and the bugs and the other stupid things you have to deal with. So in most cases, it's like, oh, I need a data storage engine. Well, you could write one, but unless you have a really specific need, 
that's really unique to your situation, it's most likely that you can use somebody else's without any issue. Slash me stares at Jack. <laughs> Screensaver turned on, so I can't see your eyeballs. Ah. Uh. <laughs> so I'm the man of the graphite cluster. I do 22, 25 million incoming metrics a minute, which scares even me. And, of course, like Brendan, I have built a monolith device to be able to hold these metrics that everybody demands that I must keep forever and ever. Hallelujah, I'm in, metrics. And at this point, I've, with the rate new metrics appear and disappear and change, the storage footprint on disk is so large that it takes, gosh, how many storage servers do I have? I think 50 servers. Um, in my graphite cluster to handle the load. And at this point, uh, graphite's uh, consistent hashing algorithm is starting to break down and storage is getting very uneven. Um, and at this point, I'm very... I'm, I'm very close to the graphite query front end uh, having dif uh, difficulties with passing out queries to 50 machines and getting the answers back. I'm running into machine failures more often because Graphite has a new concept of, hey, that storage node is dead. And I know I'm at the point where I can't scale 2x again. Uh, that is my... I know I can add storage. I know I can't scale 2x. Yet the client I'm working with is going to scale more than 2x this year. So I've been working in my lovely, uh, uh, I guess, paid time at this job of mine and working on some tools for a different graphite backend using Go because Go is a lot faster than Python. There's there's something to be said for you know having enough money to just throw hardware at the problem, but at I'm at the point where a lot of that usually starts to break down. You can only throw so much hardware. At some point... Uh, you need more efficient code. Um, and Go has been a big tool to do that for me. Uh, and one of the things I'm looking at is creating a, if folks are familiar with uh, alternate graphite storage backends, a series-like uh, storage backend, which isn't a round-robin database, doesn't store a two-year retention period for each metric, no matter if there are only two data points stored there. Series um, so is the graphite project the, the graphite maintainer project that never went never, never got finished that was it seems unfinished it's other than being a columnar data store it's it's lacking in features it's only available on graphite uh 010x and there are scaling features in graphite 9x that haven't been ported forward ouch mostly because i wrote some of them sorry but there's some other um, requirements that my client has that makes the graphite storage that they're doing uh, pretty specific and uh, there are a lot of other, thi uh, other things that one should look at before one takes down this road and in our case none of these really satisfy the needs completely that my client is trying to achieve uh, most of them 
really don't have a very good storage footprint on the disk. In my case, my the lifetime of metrics is a whole lot less than two years, but I need to keep them for at least two years. Uh, so my Whisper databases are pretty big. Um, if we look at uh, Cassandra-based solutions, uh, Brendan and I have spent a lot of time looking at, at Elk as a backend. And we get to the point where we're st- our storage footprint is based on the number of data points we store compared to our retention. But the storage footprint of each data point ends up getting pretty big um, in some of these solutions. Yeah, Elasticsearch, I'm getting between 30 and 60 bytes per data point, which is really awful. And from the research I've done with Cassandra-based solutions, I'm probably looking at at 30 bytes at least per data point, if my research holds true. Um, And I don't think that involves replication at all, which is something I need to have. Uh, my graphite cluster has grown so quickly, I haven't had the the ability really to set up uh, replication of the data. So if I lose a node, the data on that node's gone until I get that node back running. So that's a that's one of the flaws that I'm trying to overcome. But yes, my graphite is a monolith. Um, I have broken out. Uh, pickle processing. I have a Go daemon that reads Python pickles and and transmutes them into a graphite line protocol. Um, it's its own separate service. I needed something that could do it fast. There are a couple Go libraries that read pickles. Um, if you're into Go coding, uh, handling arrays of bytes is a whole lot faster than strings. Note to self. Um, handling and routing of the line protocol is done by uh, Carbon C Relay, which is uh, available on GitHub. Uh, the folks at Booking.com uh, wrote this and maintained this and used this. It's well maintained. It's fast. Uh, it can do full routing based on regular expressions, uh, much more, much more efficiently and much more featureful than uh, Graphite's Carbon Relay can. Um, I've done some of the regular expression work. Um, and with my volume, I can very quickly do something that would add a lot of CPU overhead to my ingestion nodes. But the regular expression engine in the C code is really efficient. I've been really surprised. Um, that supports uh, Graphite's consistent hashing algorithm. It also supports a couple different hashing algorithms uh, that work a little bit better. Notably, uh, Google's jump hashing algorithm. Let's see, I'm trying to break out storage currently into its own service. Um, I have a StatsD service, which really leaves me with uh, Graphite's web uh, web app, which is something I really don't hope to change out, although there are a couple uh, options out there on the internet. Um, GitHub has a version of the Graphite web interface with all the human parts stripped out so it's just the the render rest interface so what is There's it about the the graphite web app you don't want to reimplement yourself oh i don't want to find something that has to redo all the math in it all the all the algorithms all the, and all the various functions and algorithms because although there are a couple solutions for an api only version of the query interface the 
uh, functions that they support that folks are used to using with graphite uh, varies. Hmm. That's to less me, good. Uh, to me, that's just one of the hard parts that I, I don't want to re-implement because everybody else already has. Um, in any case, there are other measures I've, I'm attempting to, to work for to better scale metrics at this lovely client. But uh, that hopefully gives some overall detail to, to my monolith. All right, Jared, your turn. <laughs> Great. So I don't really have any monoliths. Um, we we have a massive data store that is a monolith, um, but unfortunately, uh, I have no design control over it, so I couldn't uh, direct that if I wanted to. Um, however, it really could use to break out a few things. <laughs> Um, so right now we're stuck with just trying to, uh, we're, we're right now we're throwing hardware at the problem. Uh, basically everything's stored in a massive Postgres database. And, uh, so we're basically throwing more memory, more, you know, we're currently using fiber channel disks. Uh, we're looking to do SSD possibly. Um, Ooh, SSDs. That'll be a big win real quick. Yes. And, uh, let me tell you about it. Yeah, because you know we would need a ton of memory to to suck the database and to to let it run in memory. Um, so uh, right now we're just in the hardware stages because we can't unfortunately split it out into uh, microservices. But it, it would actually make a lot of sense to be able to split some of these things out into individual services. So everything sits in the same. It's one large data store and basically one large application that sits in front of it and. Things interact with the application, and it writes to the, da- the database, and it goes back and forth? Exactly. Yeah, ma- so if you could redesign it, what would you do? Well, I, there's a lot of attributes associated with this data, and a lot of uh, logging, and a lot of various things like that are associated with uh, what I'll call an, an event. And there's a lot of things that could be done differently there. Uh, one, we could you could store the event itself and change the way you're storing the metrics. Um, all the logging could be done with uh, an elk stack, for example, and mm-hmm. you could correlate that through the uh, through the Kibana interface or some custom derived interface. Um, also, we are not uh, using message queues right now, and we could very benefit from using a message queue. Uh, possibly even Kafka would be really great. Um, so there's a lot of architectural changes that I would make if I was in the position to be able to make them. So I can speak highly of Kafka, but that's actually also on my scaling list. We discovered in the last week that our setup for Kafka, we've, we've grown it too wide as well as being just too big. So we're probably going to be setting up multiple sets of Kafka to handle various types of logs as things come in. At what around was your peak Kafka load again? 360,000 logs a second is where we start. We started having, we can't keep the brokers in replication sync with each other anymore. And that's our data integrity promise. So, we have to do that. And we're expecting to be handling about that logging load by the end of the summer. So how many, I have uh, to do this. 
How many replicas do you have? Or how many replicas are you sending out? So we currently have six Kafka brokers. Each have six very large four terabyte um, SATA hard drives in them because disk IO is not the issue. It's the network congestion and the the CPU stuff. So you have your, you have your replication level set to six or three? Uh, three. Okay. And the idea is that we can, we had it set to two initially and then we lost the first, the first time we lost a broker, we discovered that the resynchronization process can take six or eight hours um, when you're rebuilding an entire server of that much data. And we weren't comfortable with the idea that during recovery of a single broker, if the correct broker, if the, if another broker failed, we were going to lose a chunk of data. And we said, okay, we're going to add a fourth broker. We're going to move our replication factor to three for everything. So during recovery, we still have two copies of all the data and we're good. And we added two more brokers a while ago because we we were out, we were out of bandwidth. We were physically out of network bandwidth. That was That was a fun discovery to make. And now we're discovering that the overhead between having so many brokers and having so much traffic going on is also a limiting factor. So we are going to move to a groups of smaller brokers. There's there's a Netflix presentation from AWS reInvent this year about their their pipeline, their data pipeline. And I think they said they have like 1,500 Kafka um, brokers. I, I'd have to look, look it up. It, it's They have some crazy number of them. Wow. Because they run lots of small sets of them, and they have an, you know one application or one feature of an application routes into one set of brokers, and then another one routes into a different set of brokers. So you can have granularity, and they have they have a database to control all of this and to keep track of all the pieces. I will link uh, the presentations on YouTube. I'll, I'll link it. It's it's really worth watching the forty five minutes or whatever it is. It's really good, but we have to scale that up. So we're we're looking at building our Kafka into multiple broker sets, each handling a topic. And I was doing some back of the, the napkin math, and I realized that we our goal is to retain 31 days of logs. And at 373,000 logs a second, that's a trillion logs on disk before replication. And that kind of scares me. That's a lot of logs. Yeah, usually when you have a trillion come up in computer science, you're talking about bytes on disk, you know, a, tr- a trillion bytes. Our logs on average are about 2,000 bytes. That's a lot of logs. That is a painful lot of logs. So the other thing about scaling that people often overlook is with logs or with metrics or with events or with lots of things that people do, a lot of things are very optional. A developer can choose to log an extra set of info or debug messages, or they can choose not to. A developer or a a systems guy can say, oh, I need a metric on this thing. Or they can say, yeah, I'm done with that. And I'm going to file a ticket and, and get rid of that chunk of metrics. Um, a lot of these pieces really come from our own desires to capture and gather and store things. And if we can be smarter about what we capture, gather, and store, we don't have these scaling problems. But the internet tells me I should measure everything. Monitor everything. Well, you should measure everything. But discard the things you don't use. Or the things that don't have value for, to you after a day of use. And that's definitely one of my uh, uh, scaling challenges as I really head-on tackle the mentality of we have all these metrics and clearly we're sitting on a gold mine. At some point in time, we might, I don't know, want to pick up a shovel. Um, but in reality, most of the metric data I have is is raw debugging information and is simply not all that useful 
um, after two weeks or after a month, there's definitely very useful data in, but I'm, I'm attempting to help folks make that decision up front. What's, what's valuable to keep and at what resolutions rather than, uh, coming at it from the back end and saying, well, we've got a full crawl Is there anything we can delete? You mean you don't want to know how many network packet drops you had on a specific database replica server two years ago? Yeah, the server that we've replaced five times. And But you want the, the minute-to-minute metrics on that, right? Oh, I need it at, at least 15-second intervals. Come on. So what I'm looking to doing as far as scale is uh, migrate folks to Prometheus as they they wander toward an SOA-based uh, deployment strategy. Uh, I think that's a, a very interesting point to, to make this change. Uh, basically, each SOA service would end up getting its own Prometheus instance. And that Prometheus instance uh, running in Mesos um, is ephemeral. Uh, and I'm trying to convince folks uh, that the expectation for their metrics being ephemeral is is a good thing, and that's what they should expect. So the idea being that if a Mesos task or job or whatever restarts, if the Prometheus job restarts, you don't have its metrics anymore, and you start building again from zero, right? Its metrics come back, because it's going to monitor the same thing. Um, and most of the data there is really is this raw data that is probably not all that useful as time progresses. Um, of course, that's just one level, level of a Prometheus infrastructure. If we can get folks to uh, the developers that write this service, they know the metrics that are more important, uh, probably with some uh, guidance from me and from others in the in the company as well. Um, but they're going to know what's important and what they want to keep long term, and they can write aggregation rules to get those aggregated upwards toward the global Prometheus infrastructure which is not ephemeral, uh, which uh, archives metrics long-term, uh, if need be. So I'm hoping um, that that will end up vastly reducing the the footprint of metrics that I need to store long-term. And I know there's, there's lots of important metrics that need to be stored long-term. Uh, business metrics, uh, overall uh, hit rates, um, indicators of growth. So there is lots of important data that's worthy of keeping, but the exact uh, number of HA proxy requests forwarded to each exact server um, is probably not it. But I'm I'm very hopeful that will reduce my metric footprint, and keeping those metrics long term will uh, become an easier job. Of course, I guess I have to also pair that with. Developers get metrics basically then for free. Metrics become uber cheap. Developers can create whatever metrics they want. Um, The local Prometheus instances will gladly scrape them. And when they get full or something happens, uh, they just restart. And since uh, Prometheus forwards uh, aggregates um, as they happen, if the Prometheus server gets restarted, the data that it's forwarded before has already been forwarded. The data it starts getting when it starts up again 
gets forwarded again, so we lose very little data at the global Prometheus infrastructure level. Is At least that's my going theory. Is the Prometheus aggregation model, is it having the the parent servers scrape the lower tier servers, or is it actually a push? I think it's a scrape. I need to check more on that. Okay. Because the way there you were saying it, it sounded like the Mesos engines would be somehow pushing metrics up to a the aggregation tier rather than the aggregation tier reaching down and scraping them off, which is what I had understood. But My dream with uh, Prometheus and Mesos uh, and, and ephemeral metrics is at this point is very much just that. It's a pie in the sky. I think I can do this. I think this will stabilize metric growth and give people better metrics and us the ability to store uh, business critical metrics that we need to store in archive long term and not uh, a lot of the of the gray zone. But yeah, that's my future plan of how to break up the graphite monolith, so to speak. And those those metrics are the ones you're going to forward. The business related ones are the only ones that you're going to forward to that long term storage instance, right? More or less. Okay. If I, if, I, if I dare say it, it's the service, not the servers, right? <laughs> I think at the uh, uh, service-oriented architecture, you are correct indeed, Brendan. Although that does bring up an inside joke that none of our viewers will understand. I love the fact that they're not viewers either, they're listeners, but nonetheless. So one of the things that I've, I've watched recently scale very elegantly, better than I thought it would, was HAProxy. Um, there's some folks who I work with who are doing a really nice job with HA proxy, and I'm starting to really understand why folks, especially in our space, can't stand the F5s and those kinds of devices. Not not simply because of their their antiquity and their cost, but they're just not flexible anymore. Well, and and I have yet to meet someone who has used more than a fraction of the actual features on an f5 i mean my typical use case use case that i've seen someone use an f5 for is literally tcp ip load balancing there may have been a few i rules in there but again those are those can be replicated by uh mod read write rules and they're usually doing things like we're doing 80 and 443 and maybe 80 80 and if you're getting really fancy like we're also going to balance ldap but that's it right what's your preferred balancing platform jared uh, HA proxy. Although Nginx has done a lot of things lately uh, in that space, although you you've got to get the paid version to get a little uh, to get some extra features. Their their live dashboard is really nice. Um, but I, I my preferred is is HA proxy, especially now that the SSL code got pulled into mainline. Uh, before you had to run like S tunnel or some other thing to do uh, to allow it to do SSL termination, but now that code's been baked in since one uh, five, I believe. That's handy. Again, I've watched folks do HA proxy. I've not done it myself, so it's an amazing tool. Um, when I think of the F5s and the the hardware to do a web-based TCP-based uh, balancing, I'm still I still go back to thinking about the old way to scale, which is uh, fairly data center uh, centric. And most most folks that are are really in the scaling game are at the point where they need to have a worldwide presence, uh, not just a single data center uh, somewhere in, in some uh, 
scuzzball state that hoops to have enough bandwidth. Because at, at massive scaling, a single data center uh, has difficulty handling all the traffic, has difficulty handling all the storage, has difficulty provisioning enough uh, hardware. Well, even uh, at, and, at moderate and, levels, you have, you're, you're basically building another ma- monolith inside a data center that you have this you one data center that is sitting there and it is the single point of everything for your business. And if it okay, fails... who on this podcast has witnessed a data center go down? Me. Me. I have. Three for three. Yeah, it's, it's like watching hard drives fail and paint and dry. There's nothing more terrifying than being in a data center that's absolutely silent. There's nothing more terrifying than being in a data center which suddenly goes dark. <laughs> and not because the motion sensors turned off the lights. <laughs> well, you, you don't realize how, how loud a data center is until either you bring in a pair of noise-canceling headphones or there's a power outage and all the fans go off. Yeah, I'd recommend the earplugs there. Much, much less stress-inducing. For safety reasons, one should not enter data center without proper hearing protection. However, if you if you have a single data center that your that your stack lives in, and that data center has a problem or that network provider has a problem, you're done. And if you have designed your application to scale either with Amazon or something, so you can go but between availability zones, or you have multiple physical data centers and you're able to correctly shard and replicate and route traffic at at low enough latency that you can actually do a live failover, suddenly you're also working at scale now. You're you're able to get away from a lot of the issues that people have when they're running a small organization. Because most people's organizations, if you come to think of it, really it's a couple of servers in a single rack somewhere. So you're on a single set of switches, you're on a single power supply or single UPS, and you probably get a single set of techs at the data center who are helping you out. And that doesn't scale very well. Okay, I think that about wraps it up for episode seven. We're your hosts, Brendan Diesendorf. I'm Jack Neely. And I'm Jared Watkins. Okay, I'm going to stop recording now, if I can find the right button. Click.